Okay. Uh, this is August 31st. I am Eleanor Mann, and we are talking today about, uh, from Titus 2.5, about the area of purity for wives. Okay. So, the first thing is just talking about what the word pure, or in some translations it used the word chaste, uh, they are both from the same Greek word, which I don't know how to pronounce, so I'm not going to say it here, or try to. But um, it was interesting because Webster's Dictionary is a secular dictionary, but it really had um, pretty much the same idea as the uh, Unger's Bible Dictionary, I think the Bible Dictionary just took the definition a little bit further. Webster's Dictionary says that pure or chaste means innocent of unlawful sexual intercourse, modest, clean. Whereas the Bible Dictionary takes it a little more. It's not just actions, but it's freedom from impure thoughts, imaginations, or desires. So it's a little more uh, internalized and invisible even has to do with uh, what's inside us, not just what we do. Although, what, what our thoughts are is usually reflected in our actions. They are certainly linked. So that's what, when it's talking about being pure or chaste, that's what it's talking about in this verse. Wives don't have to worry about purity in terms of their relationship with their husband. You cannot be impure in terms of how you relate to your husband. Lust is impossible for a married couple in their, uh, in their reactions to each other. You cannot lust after your husband. Your husband cannot lust after you. Because in marriage, it's physical attraction which God wants, which God has ordained in marriage. And visual stimulation, which was sin when we were single, for women is now a ministry to your husband. So let your husband look at you, let him touch you, let him see you undress. Uh, that's a part of your ministry to him, and it's also a part of the enjoyment of your marital life. So in terms of, of relating to your husband, you don't have to worry about, oh, if I do this, I'm going to make him lust after me, because that's impossible. It has to do with physical attraction, and it has to do with, uh, and that is all God-ordained and put together by God. That's his plan for your relationship with your husband. It's a positive thing, okay? So, what then is purity for a married woman? And let's look at 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Lana, can you read this, please? You can read it from uh, the screen, or you can read it from your Bible, either way. Okay. <clears throat> 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Okay. Um, I thought this verse was interesting because I have never thought of it in terms of purity. I've always looked at it in terms of submission. Um which is a key part of the verse. But in terms of purity, I think uh, what this verse is saying is that submitting to our husbands is an aspect of purity for us because it's an aspect of our behavior that God is going to use in his life as a powerful influence. Um, uh, when it's talking about submission here, or when we talk about submission, and I know we've done a lot of that, um, it has a lot to do with going in the same direction. If you're going this way and your husband is going this way, 
then you are not living in submission to him, even if you are not fighting and arguing, because you're going in two different directions. A submissive wife is one who is seeking to support her husband. Um, and if she realizes she's going in a different way than he is going, then she is willing to make the choice to turn around and go with him. And uh, in this particular verse, it is talking about how this kind of a lifestyle is more powerful than our words in terms of influencing our husband, and it is a form of purity. Um, our chaste and respectful behavior is going to be used by God when we are willing to submit to our husband's leadership. So that's an interesting thought. That's not the only way we live a pure life, but it is definitely an aspect that Scripture sanctions as being good. Okay? So another area of purity for a married woman is sexual purity. And for us, that is commitment to a monogamous relationship with your husband for life. Uh, being willing to um, to that relationship, not consider any relationship outside of marriage. Uh, that is what sexual purity is. Salome, I see that you've joined us. Welcome. Salome, I'm sorry. I have a friend in Cameroon who, has, who writes her name the same way, but they pronounce it Salome. So I know you are Salome. <laughs> so I'm working on these names. I had to work and work to, to pronounce her name, and now I need to unlearn it so I can do yours correctly. Okay. Okay, so we're talking about sexual purity. Hebrews 13.4 says marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. That is another word for pure. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God takes um, sexual purity seriously, not just for unmarried people, but for married people. If you choose to step outside the bounds of your marriage relationship to have a sexual relationship with someone else, then it says God will judge that. He is going to evaluate what you are doing. Um, and we know that he will um, seek to, uh, he, will, he will discipline us for it. We are not, our salvation is based on grace and not works. So we're not talking about losing your salvation if you are a believer, but um, it is going to have a negative effect in your life. It's not just a, it's not just a small thing. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So another sanctification is another word for the process that makes us pure. <clears throat> that when we accept Christ, excuse me, just a minute. I have my big glass of water so I can keep my throat <clears> throat> from sounding too froggy, hopefully. Okay, so sanctification is the process we begin in our relationship with God once we have accepted Christ through the Holy Spirit making us to be more like God, step by step. Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is that process of becoming rooting and, rooted and established, and um, God making us more and more holy as we grow, grow closer to him. So we're talking about purity. So the Bible specifically speaks against sexual impurity or, or relationships held outside of marriage for married people. Okay? Another aspect of purity is purity in thought and speech. Now, um, Keddy, can you read for us tonight? Are you able to unmute and read, or do you need to stay muted? I can read. 
Okay, thank you. Can you read okay. Philippians 4, 8, please? Okay. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So this is what God... Um, okay. Mandy, welcome. We are glad for you to join us. I think that was just somebody uh, maybe getting hooked up. Okay. So um, the Bible speaks about some very specific things that God wants us to dwell on in our thoughts. Um, and dwelling means spending time considering them, thinking them. When you dwell somewhere, you live there. I dwell in Houston. Uh, Ketty dwells in South Africa. When we are dwelling on things that are true, right, pure, is listed in there, lovely, good repute, then those are the things we are focusing on rather than other thoughts that are not in those categories. Um, thoughts that are false, that are not true, that are not honorable, that are wrong, that are impure, that are ugly, that are damaging to a reputation, that are not good and that are not worthy of praise. If we are dwelling on those things, then we are not living in obedience to what Scripture teaches. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. Um, let's see, who else, is anyone else who can read? I don't mind you all uh, letting me know by chat if you are not able to read. I know Thelma can't. And I know that um, Jodine is trying to let her baby sleep. So you can let me know and I won't call on you. But if you would like to, let me know that too. And uh, I will call on you. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So... This is referring specifically to a woman who was deceived by Satan. And she was deceived in the area of her mind being led astray, which ended up in her making a bad choice and even influencing her husband to make a bad choice. He's the one held responsible, but she was deceived. Um, so we don't want that to happen. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want our minds led astray. We want to be able to focus on devotion to Christ in a pure way without other things to cloud our, um, our thinking. Ephesians 5 verse 3. Let me check in the chat. Oh, okay, Sarah, good. Um, Ephesians 5 verse 3. Sarah, can you read that? And then Timmy Tope. If you could read Philippians 2, 14, and 15 after that. Um, okay, Ephesians 5, 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Have you ever been in a situation where people started talking about things that you knew weren't good to talk about, that they were uh, impure in some area. Um, uh, when I was teaching school, I made the decision not to eat lunch in the teacher's lounge with the other teachers because there was a lot of talk that I just didn't want to put into my brain. Uh, some of it was gossip, some of it was discussing students, which we weren't supposed to do, but I just wasn't comfortable, so I would eat at my desk and do, um, do some work or um, read my Bible or do something else during my lunchtime, and I felt kind of bad for not having more social interaction, but I just had to make a, cho a choice 
and I felt like the topics of conversation were uh, when it says not even be named among you that I just uh, didn't want to be a part of it so then I was I had other times when I could go to specific people and cultivate a relationship with them so it wasn't a to total um, setting myself apart but in terms of participating in some of the discussion I had to make that choice so we have we do have to be willing in terms of purity to make hard choices in terms of what things we're going to be involved with who we're going to be uh, close friends with um, what things just what things we're going to expose our minds to because the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks so what guys goes in our heart will be reflected in our speech Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Temitope, please. Okay. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Um, did you ever think that grumbling and arguing is actually impure speech? But according to this, it is. Because God says, do things without, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. So if we're going to live pure lives, we have to be willing to put aside grumbling and disputing. Disputing is when you are uh, contradicting what someone else has said. It doesn't have to do with asking sincere questions. It just has to, has to do with contradicting someone else. Um, and God says if we are willing to put those things aside that we can be blameless and innocent especially in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It says, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And the actual Greek word for light at the end of this verse has to do with a shining light, even a star. So we are talking about a bright light, not just a little um, flashlight, but a very bright light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So that's Part of God, in God's economy, he wants us to be pure because that's how we can reflect his truth the best in the world that we live in. So we have to think, what things do you put in your mind? What do you read, look at, watch on internet or TV, listen to? Are you a participant in gossip? Um, sometimes it can be very fatiguing to I feel like I'm always on the alert as to um, what I need to what I'm putting into my mind but when I don't do that then uh, I realize my thoughts become more negative uh, my thoughts uh, become more centered on things that are not um, not what God wants to be thinking of I become a lot more of a complainer uh, and it is so easy to slip into gossip. I know we covered this specifically several weeks ago, but it is so easy, uh, for me at least, to slip into gossip because there's a certain, um, uh, I can't think of the word, it kind of makes you feel good if you feel like you're in the know. If you are not going to participate in gossip, you have to be willing to not be in the know on everything because you're not there talking about other people. But that's a choice we have to make. Are we going to pursue purity in terms of our thoughts and in our speech? The last major area is purity in behavior, being willing to separate from sin and deal with sin. Um, I don't have these three verses typed out on the screen, but... Um, Let's see. 
Okay, let's see. Ketty, let me ask you to read one of these verses again, please, ma'am. Um, 1 Peter 2.24 First Peter two verse twenty-four. Um, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Okay, so this is a pretty amazing verse. Because it's not only saying that Christ uh, died for us. He actually took our sins in his body. And he did that so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he didn't just allow our sin to be put on him. He put his righteousness in us when we come to believe in him. So we are actually healed from the power of sin as believers. Now, um, because it says, uh, by his wounds you are healed. Now, this is not something that we gain just by attending church, or even by having a Christian family, or being married to a Christian man. This is a decision we have to make separately in terms of our relationship with God. Am I going to accept Christ in my heart and ask him to be my Lord and Savior? And so uh, a verse that is not up here is 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And it says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who has not the son of God has not life. So when when you have asked Jesus into your heart, you have eternal life. You have been healed from the power of sin. Now, we won't be healed from the presence of sin until we're in heaven. Because uh, the Bible says there we will understand even as we have been understood. And we will now we see in a veil dimly, see as if through a veil dimly. But then we will see face to face. So... We still have the presence of sin on earth, but the power of sin over our lives has been broken. And if Jesus is in your heart and my heart, then when we die, we are going to be with him in heaven. That is an established fact. It is already accomplished. <coughs> and sin no longer reigns over us, which is amazing. We don't, we are not overcome by it because Christ's righteousness is in us through the Holy Spirit. Okay, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, not only do we have Christ's righteousness through accepting him as our Savior, but if we are willing to confess sin that the Holy Spirit points out to, out to us, then we are cleansed from all unrighteousness and we are forgiven. Um, so we do not have to continue to pay a price for our sin. Jesus already did that and God was satisfied with what he did for us. So we can, um, we can confess, we can forsake, and then we can continue on with our lives. We are not held accountable for our sin by God when we have asked Christ into our lives because he takes on that accountability for us. Psalm 32, 5. Um, Lana, can you read that, please? Yeah. I know, I'm making y'all work with yeah. these that are not written on the screen. Psalm 32.5 I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord 
And you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. Good. Um, this to me is an amazing verse. It describes the process of confession because the first aspect of confession is being willing to acknowledge your sin, to be willing to admit what you have done wrong. And then, and not trying to hide it, but being willing to admit that it's wrong and then to tell God that you're sorry and that you want to repent, which means to turn from, you want to uh, give up that sin and start living uh, a different way. And then the very last, um, and you forgave, uh, the literal word there is guilt. You forgave the guilt of my sin. So if after we have acknowledged and confessed our sin before God, we have to accept his forgiveness. If we are still feeling guilty, then that is not from God. That is from the accuser because he promises to forgive our sin. Very important. Um, it may be that there are repercussions from your sin that you still have to deal with. But in terms of God's eyes, your guilt has been forgiven as a part of forgiving the sin. So that is why we can separate from sin. As non-believers, we were powerless to deal with it. Uh, and even if we attempted on our own strength, we could not accomplish what God requires on our own strength. But Jesus, as the perfect Son of God, accomplished it for us. And we, ex when we accept what he did for us as a gift, and we... Um, realize that all of this has been accomplished through God's grace and mercy, then, uh, then we can begin to separate from sin as we uh, experience it in different areas in our lives. Okay, L let's look at 1 Peter 2.11 in a little more detail as a part of this process. Um, let's see, Timmy Tope. Would you like to read that for us, please? 1 Peter 2, 11. Okay. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from, from fleshy lust, which wage war against the soul. Okay. So let's break, let's do a little word study on this verse. Let's break it apart and talk about what the different aspects of it mean in, term, in terms of purity. Okay? Beloved, so we know this is addressed to believers. And then it's, I urge you. The word urge means literally, from the Greek, to call to one side. As in, I want you to step aside for a moment and just consider what you have been doing or what you are about to do. Just stop and think, urge you. And then it goes on as aliens and strangers, or in some translations, it's exiles. The Greek here is a resident alien. In other words, it's someone who is not from that country, but is living in it. And as believers, the world is not our home. Our home is in heaven. And so we are never going to fit in, or we shouldn't. And we never are going to feel completely comfortable in the world. If you feel like you're swimming upstream, or you're helping your children to swim upstream, then know that that's a part of living in the world, but not being a part of it. We are aliens and strangers and exiles. Um, I've traveled overseas you all know, with John, for about 20 years, we made, oh, maybe four or five trips overseas to different countries, and many, many people welcomed me into their homes. We felt very, um, very accepted and very cared for, but it was not my home. It was never my home. I always was um, different in some ways, and there were things that were different for me. And I can tell you a funny story. 
when we were in Russia on one of our trips, um, we always rented a flat uh, that was large enough to hold Bible studies and meetings there. And one of the things that John liked to do was invite the men to dinner before Bible study. So I would cook for them. Well, I was concerned about preparing something they would enjoy. So I worked alongside one of the wives and she showed me how to make some Russian salads and uh, prepare a meal that would be Russian. So the next week for Bible study, I had all the ingredients and I followed everything I had learned in terms of putting together the meal. And the first thing the men said was, oh, it is so good to eat this American meal. It is such <laughs> a different experience for us. And I was like, what? But I, <laughs> I realized that I was not Russian, I was American. And I could uh, figure out some things that they liked and didn't like, but I was never going to be able to cook like a Russian because I'm not Russian. <laughs> so after that, I didn't try it. It was kind of interesting. <laughs> I fixed Mexican food for them. Uh, we have a dish called enchiladas that oh, is yeah. meat rolled up in a flatbread that's made from either corn or, or wheat, kind of like uh, Kenyan chapati. And uh, I fixed that for them wondering, I made it very mild because usually we eat it with a lot of spices, but I didn't know if they would like that. So I fixed that for them and you, you make a big pan of it and put it in the oven and uh, heat it all. Everything is cooked separately, but then you heat it on in the oven and it has um, these rolled up um, rolls of meat and cheese and uh, onions with a tomato sauce and uh, different spices. And so uh, when I pulled it out to serve them, they went, oh, Mexican lasagna. So it's very different, but hey, they liked it. That's fine with me. My goal was to uh, create an environment that would um, make them feel welcome, so that uh, they would want to come for Bible study, and they did. Wow! Yeah, they came for Bible study, and they came for dinner. Um, That's lovely. So. We are aliens and exiles, aliens and strangers in this world. We will never feel completely comfortable. Our home is in heaven. But if we realize that that's true, then we can stop having that as a goal in our minds. And we can recognize that uh, we are going to uh, be different. Our actions, our words, our behavior is going to be different. We can uh, relax a little bit around other believers, which is one reason why fellowship is so important, because you are with like-minded people. But we are never going to feel completely at home on earth. And there's a verse that talks about this specifically, Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait, whoops, misspelling in there, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens. We do have a home, but it's not here on earth. It's in heaven. Okay, so go back to 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you, as, urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts. So what does the word abstain mean from? Well, in the Greek, it means to hold oneself back, to restrain to uh, to not do something, but to uh, not do it only because we keep ourselves from doing it, when our natural reaction might be to go on and do it. We can't do what feels right or rely on our emotions to guide us because they will lead us astray. And we talked about this some last week when we were talking about what it means to be sensible and to think through on things. We have to hold ourselves back from doing wrong, not even begin the process. We don't even go near to sin. Um, and I can, I can tell, I can relate another story from raising our children, and I may have shared this before, so some of you may have heard it already, but 
when we were, um, and I'm going to try to be very general because this is being recorded and I don't want to embarrass my adult children. So this is deliberately general. But one of our children, we usually on Sunday night, we had kind of a casual dinner. I fixed pizza and we ate it um, in the living room off of a low table. But um, as one of our children became uh, able to walk, they were, I realized that they were on a different level than they were uh, at a different height than when they were just crawling. In other words, they had access to a whole new world. And so one day, the pizza was sitting on the table while we all were getting ready to gather around for dinner. And uh, this child walked right up to the table and I told them, no, don't touch. We had already taught them what no meant. So they understood the concept that no meant don't touch. But nevertheless, they looked right at me and touched the tray that had the pizza on it. So we disciplined them because we had told them what, we, what they should do and they chose to disobey. Then put them back down. They looked at us, uh, thought for a minute, and then walked over and touched the table. Well, the table was still a no because the pizza tray was sitting right there and it was not just an issue of, it was an issue of obedience, uh, but what they didn't realize is that, is that that pizza was hot. Now I know that, but this child didn't know that. So it was an issue of obedience, but it was obedience for a reason that I knew about, even though they didn't know about. So they came up and touched the table, so we disciplined them. Um, uh, in the, the discipline process, we said, um, went through the whole process of explaining what it was they had done wrong. They admitted they had done wrong. We disciplined them. Then we asked them again, what did you do? They explained what they did, and then they said um, that they would obey. And then we restored the relationship by hugging them and telling them how proud we were of them. So that's the discipline process that's involved. Okay, then, the, then put that child back down next to the table. The child looked me in the eye, walked over the table, bent over, and put their nose on the edge of the pizza. Hadn't touched it, hadn't touched the table, but put their nose on the pizza. So we disciplined them again. This time, when we put the child down, they kind of toddled off in the other direction. They had figured out they needed to separate themselves from that sin or restrain, abstain, however you want to say it. The lesson was learned, even though it took three times of disciplining for, uh, for them to be willing to submit to our rules and our standard in that area. So we don't even go near to sin. The reason why we were so careful with that is that we did not want to teach our children that you get as close to sin as you can, the table with the pizza tray sitting on it. You get as close to sin as you can without actually delving in it. We wanted them to have the mindset that when you recognize sin, you run from it. Mm. Um, sin is a series of choices. If you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, Eve made a series of choices that were wrong, and so did Adam, that led to a very bad conclusion. So we can choose not even to start down that road. Um, cultivating... Emotional intimacy with a man other than your husband is a dangerous choice when we're talking about purity. Don't go on dates with other men, which is one-on-one uh, -on -one meetings. If you're in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with a man other than your husband, that's a date, whether you call it a date or not. And you are in danger of developing emotional intimacy, which frequently can be the first step 
towards an affair. Not that it would result in that every time, but most affairs start with emotional intimacy being developed first. So be careful. In terms of purity as wise, as wives, that is just something that we need to be wise about and be careful with. Um, if your boss wants to have a meeting with you, then meet in an office with an open door where other people in the office are aware of what's going on. Or go in a group setting. But be careful about one-on-one -on -one meetings with men other than your husband. Sometimes it's better just not to go there. Okay. Um, First Thess... First Thessalonians 5.22 says to abstain from every form of evil. So if you, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty complete. If you have determined that something is evil, then we are to abstain from it. We don't say, well, this isn't as bad as this other choice would be. We don't say, well, everybody else is doing it. We don't say, well, it's okay if I just don't get caught. What God says is that we should abstain from every form of evil. So let's go back to 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Now, we just said lust, it's impossible for you to lust after your husband or for him to lust after you. So we're not talking about um, the marriage relationship. We're talking about um, uh, other forms of evil that are not involving your relationship with your husband. So which wage war? Let's look at that phrase. Which wage war against the soul? This um, brings to mind a picture of the enemy encamped around the city ready to attack at any time, committed to a long fight, and to doing what is necessary to win. That is what every form of evil and what fleshly lusts want to do. They want to wage war against our soul. We need to realize, not fear, because God's already given us the victory in Christ, but we need to realize the seriousness of the battle. And particularly in this day and age, the uh, family is under attack. Husband-wife re relations, relationships of parents with children, all of that is under attack. So we need to be aware that um, there is an enemy. And we can wage war, but we're not going to be able to sit this one out. Not if our children and our marriages are going to make it. So God is committed to us and to our purity. He will fight for us. He's given us the weapons we need for this battle. He is committed to our victory. So... Uh, like I mentioned early, earlier, we don't have to fear. We don't have to um, be concerned that we're not strong enough. Uh, God's given us everything we need in order to be victorious. But we have to appropriate it. Psalm 119, 9 and 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? That's what we're talking about. By keeping it according to your word, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So what is one way to combat sin? It's treasure God's word in our hearts. And that is uh, talking about intaking the word into your life any way you can. Read it, study it, meditate it, memorize it. Uh, some of you may have noticed that a lot of the verses in today's study are from the Navigator's topical memory system. And um, I memorized that in starting in 1970. So that's, what, 50 years, I think, if, I'm, if my math is correct. Uh, so God has had a long time to work 
those uh, verses into my thinking and into my choices and into my values. Um, but give him the tools to do it. If we treasure his word, then God is going to help us keep our way pure. And he is going to bring those verses to mind so that we have something to grab onto when we are dealing with areas of sin. Another verse, Hebrews 4.12. Who would like to read that? Ketty, are you tired of reading? Can you read this? Well, I like this one. I'll read it. Good. I'm glad you like it. I would hate for you to <laughs> not read it if you didn't like it. <laughs> uh, Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So God's word is the measuring tape for evaluating ourselves in terms of how we line up to his standard. It is able to judge not only what we do, but what we intend to do. It helps us evaluate our behavior, our relationships, our entertainment, and our speech, all of the things which can feed fleshly desires instead of our spiritual natures. For our spiritual health, we have to read it, study it, meditate it, and let it permeate our thinking and our decisions. Now, I realize when I share these things with you all that many of you have young children, you may have jobs outside the home, you have responsibilities, you have ministries, you have um, babies, you have a lot going on. So God understands that. He knows where we are. He knows what circumstances are in our life and he doesn't condemn us but at the same time if we are able to grab onto whatever we can in terms of figuring out a way to keep his word before our eyes and in our thinking then that's what's going to help us to navigate the difficulties that we face in terms of our spiritual growth and development for ourselves and for our families so that we can guide our children on that same path. I did um, write down here at the bottom some victory verses. I have, if you can see, I have a little group of cards here with a metal ring in them that I keep on my desk. And it, these are my victory verses. These are special verses that I have read that really ministered to me in the area of God's victory. Actually, what I've titled the category is Victory Assured. I have uh, categories of seek God, commit, and trust, and then Victory Assured. Mm -hmm. I started out with saying, as my topic, Victory Achievable, and then I thought, no, that's not strong enough. And then Victory Possible, and I thought, no, that's really not true either. So I ended up titling it Victory Assured. So let me read you one of these verses. And then you can, um, these notes have been sent out to y'all. You can look at them uh, in your email. You can make copies if you want. Or you can just write these verses down if you're able to see the screen right now. Let me kind of put it up towards the top. Okay. Let me read the first one, Jeremiah 32, verses 17 and 27. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? So the first verse, 17, is Jeremiah acknowledging God's power and sovereignty. And then the second verse is God's answer. Yes, that's true. Nothing is too difficult for me. So God just confirms what Jeremiah said. So there's nothing in our lives, past, present, or future, that God can't give us the victory over. Purity, in terms of, of our relationship with our husband, our relationship with God, um, is, in God's eyes, it's uh, what is going to draw us closer to him. And if you look at 
Hebrews 12. Let me get, get to that real quick. This isn't in my notes. This is a freebie. <laughs> okay. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we can run with endurance. We can lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. This is possible. It's not something that's out of reach. And it's not something that is just uh, cerebral or emotional or um, uh, kind of a, a, a nebulous feeling. This is the Holy Spirit exposing areas of our life that God wants us to deal with. And we acknowledge it to be sin. We confess it to the Lord. We accept his forgiveness and his removal of guilt, and we press on in a new direction. So this is how God wants us to live. And this is uh, what God wants us specifically to do as women. And in our uh, environment of influence over our husbands and our children, God will use this not only in our lives, but also to draw our families closer to him, to sow seeds of um, spiritual growth and development and salvation in our children's lives. So let's, um, let's do it. Let's allow God to work like he wants to work. And I pray that um, as you look over some of these verses and the Holy Spirit works in your mind, I pray that this would be an encouragement to you and that God would... Um, Use it to draw you closer to him. So let's pray.